All right. So if you have heard a sermon on this passage before, it probably went something along these lines, right? Because Jesus died for your sins, He has made you His heir. You, have, you, are, you are Christ's heirs, and you have all of the riches of Christ. And so, therefore, love the orphan and the widow and the poor, and, and don't confuse worldly wealth with kingdom worth. Worldly wealth with kingdom worth. That last part in particular has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Right? Frankly, that sermon is really easy to hear for us, but I would say it's rarely done or lived out. Not because, I don't say that because I think any of us, we, we actually disagree with anything that I just read, especially the orphans and widows part. Because unlike sometimes in our history, uh, including when, when James was writing this letter, our culture doesn't believe that when you are wealthy, you're actually more blessed by God or the gods in some form or fashion, right? That was actually part of James's context was that to be wealthy meant, wow, you must be doing something right and God loves you more, actually. We don't believe that the wealthy deserve more honor. In fact, I say it's probably quite the opposite. Um, we are extremely uh, skeptical of wealth and, and how people got it because they didn't earn it, right? By the way, in saying this, I'm just trying to describe this. I'm not saying that any of that is bad or good. I'm just trying to describe the environment and the culture, the society that we live in. So why then, if we believe these things, don't we do it? Well, to start, I want to affirm that this, the, this kind of probable sermon that you've heard before is, is very true. It's just not one that's preached from James. That's actually just not what's in here. James would agree with it. He has, I think he has very similar ends in mind, but he sees a very different way of getting there and, and for a very different reason why. And the difference there, that gap, is why I'm convinced we rarely live this out. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this gap. And in order to start talking about that, this gap, we really need to exercise some cultural self-awareness, maybe grow a little bit in our cultural intelligence this morning. And to do so, I'm going to talk a little bit about like, the difference between individualism, which is the, the kind of framework for community that we live in, versus the patronage culture that James was writing as a part of and into. By the way, um, if you were here last week and you were here for all the fun triangles that I had up on the screen, um, there are no more triangles, don't worry. Uh, but there are references under them, uh, under the main point of each part. So if you remember those, I'm gonna, those are implicitly referencing them, and I'm not going to necessarily talk about them. So if you, are, if you weren't here last week, it's totally okay. You're not missing out on anything. Well, you're missing out. But like, you, this will be perfectly intelligible, okay? This is more of a, a bonus uh, if you were here last week, okay? So, individualism versus patronage. I've talked a lot about individualism in terms of how we approach identity. You know, either receiving in the gospel by grace our dignity, value, and worth, or achieving it. But this morning I want to talk about individualism in terms of how it shapes our, our view of community, right? An individualist approach to community would see community as the sum of the independent relationships in the community. And they are, that, that community is transactional. In other words, there are, there are rules, typically. There's a give and take. Uh, symmetrical. I mean, really, we live in a really egalitarian society, so um, you know, equality of, of socioeconomic class and education is really important. 
And also based on mutual interest, right? That interest could be you know, life stage and circumstances. It could be uh, affinity, like think we agree with. It could be political. It could be a shared purpose or a cause or a mission that you're a part of, right? But how this works out when things get difficult is really where the rubber hits the road. Let me kind of, let's, let's play this out. Like, let's say that there's a, a baker in Lafayette. Let's, let's call her name Brienne. Brienne the baker, okay? She lost her bakery in a fire. That's a little close to home, right? Especially about a year ago. We, we experienced that in terms of how many homes were lost in Louisville especially. Um, let's say she lost her bakery in a fire um, here in Colorado, in Lafayette, the first thing that she would do after the initial crisis is over, right, is probably call her insurance company, right? Because she's paid good money to ha be reimbursed if something like this happens. It's ex an explicit transactional part of the relationship. Likewise, whether it's, you know, maybe a, a regional crisis like we had a year ago, uh, you'd call State Emergency Management Agency or FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Either way, there's probably some kind of government assistance for things like this. And you should call them because you pay taxes, right? That's why we pay taxes. After that, the next step is probably going to be going to the bank because you probably have a mortgage on the building if you own it, uh, or you're going to need uh, one in order to buy a new building or to build a new establishment. You might start a GoFundMe page because people in this area are very sympathetic to people losing their, their, their property because of fire. Actually, we saw that. It was amazing how generous people were to people who lost everything. It's incredible. And then they'd probably also kind of you know, crowdsource, call some friends, some fellow bakers, like, hey, I love your style, and you're in Denver, but I'm in Boulder County, and, and like, so it's not really a threat or competing with you. Who, did you. who did you go to for your interior designer? Like, I need an architect or, you know, a general contractor, right? You're going to call friends and crowdsource for them. And once, that's, once you've rebuilt and, and, and relaunched, you're going to be incredibly grateful to, to all of those things happening as you expect them to, assuming they do. Like, for the sake of the illustration, let's assume that they actually go the way that you hope, right? And you will be back to normal. And maybe you might also have some, you know, some goodwill sympathy, like, oh, so-and-so's bakery was destroyed. It's just reopening. You sh we should all go in support. But that said, Brianne is going to have zero obligation, zero uh, reciprocity expected of all those services and all those means of, of rebuilding her bakery, right? No obligation. She's not going to call the you know, state emergency man management agency and be like, hey, I actually don't have a need. I just wanted to thank you. It's kind of weird, right? Probably send an email out through GoFundMe, any personal help probably, but that's more a result of, of existing relationships than it is as a result of the help that you received. This really is a challenge. That makes it a huge challenge to be a church in a culture like this, right? There are, like, are trade-offs in every culture, right? But in an individualistic culture, our default and this kind of the, the gravitational pull on our hearts is to view the church as more as a provider of spiritual goods and services. And if, it, if, the, if a church fails to uh, provide those goods and services or is not aligned with our existing interests, then we'll just find one that does. It may not even be 
you know, that, that you disagree doctrinally. It might just be that, like, you know, we feel like we've outgrown this church, right? Or our kids have outgrown the ministry, right, uh, that, 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 was, that was created for them. That may not necessarily be shallow things. Like, I'm not saying that we have a tendency to just be like, I like this church better because the music's better or the, the you know, there's no preaching that is death by triangles, right? <laughs> I'm saying... I'm saying, like, for good reasons of, like, I really want to be more faithful to Jesus even. And there's an opportunity over there for me to use my gifts and to what have you. Like, all of these, that, that ability to even do that is a complete and total historical anomaly. It's only been the last couple generations, actually, that that was something that we could do. Never mind was something we might be tempted with. It has never before been an option and still isn't for the vast majority of the church across the, global, across the globe. It's really only if your basic needs are met that that is something you can consider or contemplate. Now, that's an individualistic kind of definition of community. Let's talk about patronage, right? Patronage is a a relational system, it's, a, it's an approach to community that is more of a tapestry of interdependent relationships that have, instead of transaction, transactional rules, it has reciprocal norms. What I mean by that is it's less like on paper and explicit, and it's more of like, well, this is just what you do, right? It's informal, it's implicit. Also, instead of being symmetrical, it's more asymmetrical. You would have or consider as a part of your community people who... Uh, are from very different educational backgrounds, are very different stages of life and success, right? And it's not based on mutual or shared interest. It's based on personal loyalty. Okay, let's, let's, let's extend, the, extend this Baker illustration a little bit. Let's say it's not Brienne in Lafayette. It's Bellin in Ephesus in the first century, okay? Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Bellin... He comes from a family of bakers. It's all he knows how to do. He was raised to be a baker. This is his vocation. It's his life. He lost his bakery in a fire also, but he can't call an insurance company because the laws that make insurance companies possible didn't exist until 1849. Fun trivia fact. His family, his extended family and his, kin, uh, his kinship connections can't help him because they're all based out of Damascus in modern-day Syria, and that's just way too far uh, to be able to meaningfully support him and bring resources to bear. So that's not an option. So he, the banks did exist, but they have a, they were very different from modern banks, right? Everybody knows that Bellin lost his bakery in a freak fire, and the word has spread that the baking gods or baking god uh, has cursed Bellin as a baker. He's cursed, and so no, no bank is actually going to loan to him because that would, be, that would be disagreeing and going against the God's will, and nobody should do that, right? And besides, even if they did extend him a loan, no baker could possibly repay a loan on bread alone. It's not possible, okay? So what in the world does he do? With all, with that, without the support systems of a modern individualist society, what does he do? Well, he he reaches out to a man named Diocles. Diocles, by the way, I'm getting this extended analogy from a fantastic book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. The title explains a lot. Okay. Diocles, he comes from a wealthy family. 
Not a, not a family of bakers, but whose family a few generations prior took a risk and bought a gold mine that happened to have just recently discovered a, or just after discovered a, a new gold vein. With that money from the gold mine, he bought a bunch of farmland, and now he is very actively involved in a major mover and shaker in the regional trade, and, and both trade routes and supply and demand. He's very active. And every morning, people that he would see as his friends, and people who would see him as their friend, and this is strange to us because we're not used to this being like a thing friends do, but this absolutely was how friends would be uh, defined. His friends would present themselves and stand in line every morning at his estate in the good part of town, probably up on a hill, and they would line up and one by one come to him and ask if there was anything he needs and or uh, ask for or petition for some kind of help from him or just be there to greet him and say hi and be available in case he wants to give out any gifts. Okay. So Bellin shows up one morning at the end of that line because he's, he's not a friend of his yet, but he wants to be. And so he shows up at the end of the line. And when it comes to his turn, he explains the situation. He explains what he's tried to fix the problem. And he's, he, he asks for help. He asks pretty boldly, would you rebuild my bakery? Now, Diocles is not obligated, either socially or morally, to help him, but he decides to help anyway. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Bellin is a particularly skilled baker. Like, I don't know, maybe he's able to do the yeast and the bread in a specific way that no other baker in, in Ephesus can do. Uh, or maybe Diocles' kids just particularly love Bellin's donuts, right? I mean, I love donuts. Who doesn't love donuts? But like, you know, a really good donut you will drive for, Okay. Maybe he, just, he needs another market or an expansion of the market for the excess wheat that the farmlands he bought from, with the gold from the gold mine. He needs a, a way to use that wheat, I don't, whatever it is, okay? Through some combination of giving him money and sending uh, masons for the bricklaying because those ovens get hot, uh, you know, thatchers for the roof, maybe even buying the lumber directly from somebody in another patronage network gets him the lumber to rebuild, Whatever it is, he leverages his resources both of, of both his, his relational network as well as finances to help. He knows Bellin will never be able to repay him. He knows it. But he also knows, because of the culture, that Bellin's going to express gratitude in tangible ways. He knows that Bellin will probably deliver bread to his family every morning now. Doesn't have to be said. He'll probably uh, deliver bread to the farmhands on the, in, the, in the surrounding agricultural region. And he knows that, that Bellin is, is going to be so grateful. He's going to praise Diocles at every opportunity. He will probably tell all of his friends to vote for him in the next uh, democratic election, right? He will probably, every time someone comes over to his new bakery, and ask, like, how in the world were you able to rebuild this? He'll be like, let me tell you about Diocles. It may even be called Diocles' Donuts. Diocletian Donuts? I, anyway, okay. The point is that this isn't just a one-time thing either. The relationship continues. There is a, a reciprocity happening because Diocles is not just done there. He's going to also ensure that Bellin's goods have a fair market and have access to that market and make a fair dollar on them. 
He's going to be implicitly endorsing him through all of the connections that he has. And also, he'll have favor with businesses and clients throughout the entire city and the entire region because of it. He's plugged in. He's connected. It provides so much stability. Now, to us, especially when I said these are his friends and this is how we viewed friendship, it probably feels kind of icky, right? It kind of feels uncomfortable because like, well, friendship, grace, grace doesn't have strings attached. Actually, yeah. That doesn't mean it, make it conditional. That doesn't make it uh, legalistic in some sense. It actually is what makes it relational. You see, I th- I'm convinced one of the things that, that like most bothers us or might make us feel icky about this illustration or this example is not that there are strings attached. It's, ac- it's actually more that we are. It's that we're obligated, that we're attached. But grace without reciprocity is not and cannot be relational. If, let me put it this way. If you've ever felt like you have a daisy relationship with God, and by that I mean you, you kind of pick off the petals of the flower and you say, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That back and forth experience of like, is God's love real is often more a result of our individualism in the ways that we don't live with thick community, with strange community, right? Let's, let me, if, if I have one goal this morning, I want to change the way you see this. I want, to cha- I want you to change the way you see community. I want to change the way that you see community in Scripture. For example, let me read Acts chapter 2, verses 45 through 47. Now, read this through the lens of patronage and not individualism. It's a dramatically different passage. Talking about the early church, it describes the practices and how the early church lived. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's not communism, that's patronage, okay? In other words, the body of Christ, when that analogy is used in Scripture to describe the church, the body of Christ, it means that the church is the ordinary means of grace, It's the means by which Jesus, as our patron, dispenses his benefits, his blessings, his love. I got so excited about that, I completely lost my place. Okay, I'm sorry. There it is. Thank you. Okay, verse 46. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. It goes on. So this is the means by which he dispenses gifts and answers petitions. Day by day, attending the temple together, right? This is like, the language of this is as if you were attending to or you were showing up, you are being present in the morning, day by day, to, at your patron, their estate, but in the temple together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The word is received because they know that it's a gift from God, their patron, not just they ate the bread their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor, exactly as Belen would have Diocles for the benefits that he has gifted to him. But it doesn't just start with God. He has favor with all the people as a result of God's love and grace. And the Lord added to their number, in other words, their patronage community, the church, day by day, those who were being saved. 
Acts 2 is describing more than just the sum of a, of, of a group of people who are transformed by the gospel and happen to be generous. Like, that is absolutely the case. That is there. That's true. It's describing a distinct and tangible relational system, a community that is collectively different and distinct from the community and communities around them because it is under the patronage of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is a community that is so enriched by and interdependent on God's grace that every member does not just see themselves as Belen, they actually see themselves as Diocles too. Because of God's grace and his riches are so abundant that he is, we are heirs who have been given all things. Because of that, we are not just recipients. We are patrons ourselves giving to one another. Guys, that's different. <laughs> that's really different. Let me, let me give, I want to celebrate actually an example of, of of, of something that, that we're doing as a church that I'm like really excited about and is a perfect example of this, right? Um, on February 10th, we're going to have a, a parents' night out. And so if you have been volunteer, volunteering with Table Kids, um, this is how we want to be reciprocal. And we're going to, like, you can drop your kids off that night on February 10th. That's all the information's in the newsletter, which is why you should sign up for it. Uh, and you can drop them off here, and there's going to be pizza and games, and there's going to be fun. You know what's super cool about that? The people who are serving and doing that so that the parents who have been serving in Table Kids can, can have a date night or something, it's being done by a community group who has said, yeah, let, we're going to do that. That just happens to not have any kids in it. So they're not even benefiting. This is a community group. These are people who, who are seeing the lens, seeing community through this lens and through the lens that Darren actually articulated before we even did the call to worship. I know it was, it, was, it was totally funny when he said it, but also, like, that's actually, that's right, that's it. We absolutely should watch as kids. This is what embody many parts. That's the church. It's family. If, I, if, if I'm like, okay, let me boil down the difference here between individualism and patronage as a community. And by the way, every main point from here on out is shorter than the last, Okay. It's the difference between when someone asks, how are you doing on Sunday morning? When you answer, you're, asking, you're thinking through either the lens of like my life versus our lives. It's a fundamental difference of are you, are you saying like what is good and bad for you or good and bad, I'm thinking about the tables. Maybe you said, hey, you should, did you see the chairs we just got? Of course, I'm doing great. These are awesome chairs. What a silly thing to be so excited about. But It's meaningful. Because it actually helps us to be more hospitable and loving and welcoming of our neighbor, to love our neighbors ourselves. That's amazing. It's the difference between seeing it, it's seeing the church through this lens of our personal well-being being extended to include the whole. Of our personal well-being extending to include the whole. All right. That's the context. Now let's actually dive into the passage in a way that requires so much less explanation because we're hearing it through this lens. Let's talk about the difference between patronage and partiality. Okay, remember the context of this. If, you've been, if you were here when we started, I went into great detail about how James is writing to people who have been scattered by persecution. Like Christians, the best example of which and best known is Stephen, who is stoned to death. 
the early Jewish Christian believers have been scattered into the region around them, and James is writing to them. And so in light of that, let me, let's read verses 6 through 7 again. He's saying to them, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? That's the persecution. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, i.e. Jesus, by which you were called? Okay. The bad motive that James is trying to address here is not that, you know, by giving wealthy people a nice seat in church, like there's going to be some great benefits because they're going to visit and then they're going to become members and then they're going to start giving and tithing to the church. It's not because people want their money. It's actually because they're currying favor with patrons, with benefactors in order to come under their care and protection, to become part of their family instead of their church family. So James is saying, like, are, are you serious right now? He's saying, do you not know that you're under new management? Things that happened before, no, this isn't how we do things. The, your patron is the king of kings and the lord of lords. These old patrons who are showing up be, are doing so because they want to control. They want to pull you back into their sphere of influence, into their community, and they want to stamp out your love and connection to the divine patron in the church. Don't turn your back on the one who gave himself up to you and for you just to avoid temp temporarily avoid death. Th th that patron is only going to take from you. It's not a patronage of grace like the church is. It's a very similar motive if you're familiar with the book of Exodus when Israel is rescued from Egypt, given the Ten Commandments, does none of them, and is then in exile in the wilderness for 40 years before going to the promised land, their response while wandering around in the wilderness in the promised land is to say like, okay, where is this land that was promised? This is terrible. This new king, this, this Yahweh, this God, he's, this is, this is miserable. Can you, we should have stayed in slavery in Egypt. It's that inclination James is addressing. So when he says, that pure and undefiled religion of God the Father is visiting widows and orphans. It's not because they have greater financial needs. That's transactional. That's our individualism talking. It's actually because their natural relational connection to God's ordinary means of grace, the church, has been severed. Let me, let me put it this way. They are widows and orphans because of the people they are currying favor with. They're abandoning the need. This part, let me put it this way. Partiality, the sin of partiality that he lists here and describes is so grievous because it denies the blessing of benefactor Jesus within the body of Christ to those whose steadfast faithfulness in the trials that we that they're going through, through this persecution, they've suffered in the name of Jesus. And these beloved brothers are dishonoring the poor because they're currying favor with the very patrons who made wives into widows and kids into orphans. So it's not about wealth. It's not about greed that James is addressing here. It's actually a self-preservation from threats that whatever that threat is, whether it's this country is going downhill, or can you believe what Republicans or Democrats are doing? 
Can you believe what, it literally doesn't matter. They are distracting us from loving our neighbor. Gosh, I wish, like, we really can't identify with that at all. We really can't. Turns out that's actually pretty universal, according to, like, all of human nature. It's more than this, even, even that as, as a distraction, thinking about it that way, even that is still just a symptom. There's something deeper that we have to allow James chapter 2 to, to hold a mirror up to our hearts around. So I asked at the beginning, why is this rarely lived out? The answer is because we want the kingdom without the king. Right? We, we agree with what James is saying is true, that orphans and widows should be cared for, that we should visit them. And we want to live it out, and we want to live that way, but we want to do as individuals unobligated to the body of Christ. In other words, we, can't live, we don't live it out because it actually isn't possible as individuals, but it is as the body of Christ with Christ as our patron. It's a whole nother it's a whole other ballgame. This is literally what the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church in Rome, whom he has never met. This is literally what he is saying is the, the entire therefore of the first ch- 11 chapters of, of the book of Romans. Let's, let me read it because, again, I want you to like read this through the lens of patronage because it's, it's life-changing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That language of present your bodies, present yourselves to the patron. How do you do that? Well, it's it's Jesus, right? But do so in a way that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. In other words, do not operate off of the old patronage system, right? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do this intentionally. Be all in. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. In other words, where, he is, where and how he is calling you to respond to his grace with reciprocity. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Same word, perfect, mature, like we talked about it last week. Cool, huh? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In other words, anything that we do in our acting as patrons to one another is because of our capital P patron, Jesus. It's all gift. It's all grace. And he provides. Okay. We don't want to live as, we we prefer to live as individuals unobligated to the body of Christ. But James is trying to tell us in this last section, that's actually not how it works. It's, it's not actually possible, right? He says, live like kings because the wealth is not your worth. And that is absolutely accurate and this is implied throughout. But he's saying live like kings, not in selfish wealth, but as the king of kings who gave it up in, there, in that. Let me read verses 8 to 13 just to refresh our memory again. And by the way, after this point, we're gonna go into the Q&A. So if you have questions, text them in. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps 
the law, whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under, the language of under is really important, the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you read this through an individualist, transactional lens, you will hear, if you don't check the moral boxes, God won't love you and you will be judged harshly. That's not what's being said here. It's being communicated in the context of patronage. And he's, what he's doing is, is he's exposing and drawing out that partiality is actually a symptom of living according to the old patronage, under the law of judgment, but we live under the law of liberty. We are freed, not from obligation, but to obligation, a better and different kind of obligation, a new patronage that is defined not transactionally, but by mercy. That's what, he said, that's what he means when he says mercy triumphs over judgment. By the way, that's what Jesus was articulating in Luke 6 when he says that if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Well, the, in, the, in that patronage system, pre-gospel of grace, there's lots of benefits. He's saying, like, not, not ultimately. He's saying, what benefit is that to you according to the, king, the economy of the kingdom? For even sinners love those who love them. That's transaction, right? And so he, he offers two things. He offers, he anticipates excuse in verses 10 through 11. People who are saying, like, you know what, James, I follow the rest of the law. So it's okay to make it accept, an exception here because lives are at stake. There's something really important here. We'll, we could die. Um, who's your patron? This is the God who's given you eternal life. No, you will not ever ultimately die. You mistake threat for opportunity or opportunity for threat. When it says visit, the word visit, orphans and widows, it's the same word used to describe when God the Son visits earth. It's incarnational. It's Christmas morning. It's a witness. It's a presence. God visits us, and therefore we visit one another. Orphans and widows who, apart from the body of Christ, would not. If we don't do that, and to the degree that we live underneath the old patronage, it says we will be transgressors of the law. In other words, we are leaving the law of liberty behind. We are leaving under the umbrella of Christ's patronage, and we are choosing to live outside of a different one. That's different. He's saying, no, you've been saved into something, not just from something. You left that already. Do not return to that. And for those who are convicted by James's word, he offers comfort. That's what verse 13 is all about when he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. For those of you, like, maybe you're thinking, like, how in the world do we do this? This is terrifying. This actually, because if you're, by the way, if you are feeling like this would require a lot of change in my life, good. You're, you're getting it. Because this is so foreign to us. None of us, myself included, live this way, okay? I, when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I definitely think about the church. But I often am thinking it in very reductionistic, transactional ways. I'm not immune to this at all. Okay, let's talk about how this works for us because I want to be really practical. I want you to see, like, consider the table a greenhouse 
that has been tailored specifically to this environment. Everything that we do as a church and everything the church does across human history is intended to be a greenhouse in an environment that may or may not be hospitable, right? There's a lot of cultural climate change going on. We've talked about how things have changed dramatically in the last few to several years, and we're all still trying to figure out which end is up. We need an anchor. We need a, a refuge. The church is a greenhouse refuge for that inhospitable environment. Very practically, think about it in terms of like all of us, some of us, and one of us, different spheres. All of us, Sunday worship, just show up. Like, I think a lot of times I worry so much that as a pastor, I'm heard through this lens of like, well, you want us to show up more because then we can do things for you or we can do things. So it's like, well, no, actually, because this is good. This is your family and you're missed. And I get it, things happen and exceptions happen, but it's not also just, it's also not just for you. When... When you're not here, other people miss out on your presence. Other people are not as much and fully themselves without you to draw them out into that, right? I'd encourage you, when you notice someone that you know in, in, here in your, in your own church and you notice that they haven't been here, call them, check up on them. They might be sick. They might need some help. Like this isn't for, this isn't this is this is a, a a family ties thing. This is not a, a a transactional thing at all. Ask how to tangibly help, not just hey if you need help, here it is. Like they may have young kids. I got to I got to give Heidi a huge hug, and it almost made me cry as much as it made her cry. Right? She's had twins. Offer Heidi some help, okay? <laughs> Offer to help her help them get out the door, like. You would be amazed what one extra pair of hands does to, to help to, to toward that end. And you know what? It's so good and so worth it. Maybe, maybe you call somebody and they say, you know what? I'm just really so busy right now. I encourage you to lovingly offer to help them kind of like get off of the dance floor and, and all the chaos of that and get up onto the balcony and get some perspective and be like, hey, like, well, how can we help? How can I help you think through this? Because one of the hardest ways to, like, one of the biggest challenges to, to finding time for something is finding the time to make time for something, right? So help with that. And maybe, maybe you're too busy to do that, in which case, ask somebody else to help both of you with that, right? Okay, that's kind of like the weekly Sunday rhythm. Let's talk about community groups. Like, if you're, if you're not in a community group, I encourage you to be in one. Um, come, come by the Connect table afterwards or uh, come find me or Maria and we'll make sure that you get plugged into one because we, we're going to have some space for them uh, in, in a couple of them this spring. Um, and maybe you're in one, but maybe you don't attend. Like everything I just I said about coming on Sunday morning applies here too. And also, it is in those, those smaller groups of relationships that it's actually easier to do that for everybody who's there, right? To, to, to be a patron of grace, to them because of the grace that you have received, right? Your presence alone does this. If I could, can I talk to the guys in the room, men here first for a second? We are very relationally dumb, okay? We will not realize we have a need for this in particular 
until we're way past due, right? There are studies after studies that saying that, that the, greatest, the greatest health risk to men in modern society is not any of the things that are normally a health risk to men. It's actually rampant loneliness, chronic loneliness. And if you are feeling that way, I just, like, it is not weakness to say, I'm actually feeling really lonely. I could just, like, I just, I don't even need to talk about anything specific. I just, can we, can we hang out? That's okay. Maybe you need to, like, I don't know, chop some wood or something while you do it. That's fine. Like, <laughs> like I'm with you. I don't know. I'm not very good at chopping wood, but I can play some Legos. Like, we can build some Legos together. Anyway. Okay. For all of us, though, if this is something that can't be added to our plate, we need to ask what needs to come off of it. Because I guarantee you we are seeing the world transactionally if that's the case. Again, I'm talking about myself here too. All right, individually, it's important to ask. I encourage all of us, like, never stop asking this question, and then we will jump into the Q&A. Never stop asking the question, who might be suffering a disconnection from the benefits of the body of Christ? And I I want you to, like, extend your imagination past the financial and maybe even just the relational, because I'll tell you what, this is actually a really weird season for us as a church and as a church plant. What I mean by that is, like, normally in a church, if you're new, the people who have been around the longest are the most connected, right? And sometimes the challenge is actually, you know, plugging into and breaking through that, right? That those, those existing established roots, right? That's not the case for us as a church. Actually, a lot of the people who've been here the longest are probably feeling the most lonely because of that assumption, right? And post-pandemic, I don't think there is a safe assumption if somebody is, is actually feeling connected or, or feeling lonely. And so maybe even just literally ask anyone, how are you doing? And specifically, you know what Brad was talking about in the sermon? Yeah, do you feel connected? Is there anything I can do to be a part of that? And if not, maybe who should we ask next, right? This is what it means to, to live as the body of Christ. Start with your community groups if you're in one, but don't just, just keep asking as an ongoing habit. And the last people I, I, I want to just in, invite is that maybe you feel like a functional, less social orphan or widow. Maybe you're on the la- that pedal of God loves me not. Maybe, maybe you've been existing here by not living here in the church. Would you, would, you, would you tell me? I don't, that's not okay. That's not okay. And we, I want to, whatever I can, whatever we can do to change that, let's do it. All right. I've gone long. So let me cover at least a couple of these questions. Your illustration about the baker of Ephesus was so helpful. Could a modern parallel of patron be Shark Tank? That's genius. Okay, it is a parallel. However, it's still extremely transactional, right? Because the negotiation process is highly conditional what percentage of the ownership that that patron gets. But yeah, there's a functional kind of relationship there, but it's still a very individualist culture that is informing it. So, man, I really wish I had thought of that. That was good. Um, Logistics question, do we know how James' letter reached a dispersed church? Was one letter copied and sent out to various local churches? 
Fantastic question. Uh, we, we're, we don't know for sure. Part of how it became scripture is in part because that had to have happened at some point, and that letter would have been treasured by those who were dispersed. And as they were dispersed, they would be taking that with them and sharing it to other believers. So yes, some form of that, in terms of the initial one, I, good night, I, that's, that's tough. I have no idea. Um, there probably would have been people like, because we talked about anger and how there's like zealots who were trying to you know, maybe fight back. So there would have been some kind of structure or leadership that he could get that to for its dissemination, something along those lines. Okay, how do we make use of this idea of patronage to repair relationships in the church? Um, this is, yeah. I would actually, I gave just like a few kind of examples of this. I think the first part is just to try to exercise some imagination and ask. But even before that, like what we're doing here this morning is helping to shape our lens to see the church differently. And so that, we're doing the first step now. This is really good. Um, but I would also encourage you, like, if you have ideas that I have not mentioned, tell everybody else and tell me too, because I, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. Again, we're all part of this environment and been shaped by it. We could all use some imagination. So, like, let's crowdsource this. <laughs> okay, last question. How can we use these principles of patronage to reach those outside of the church? Absolutely. Okay, when he says... If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When, this, when Jesus said those words in the Gospels, neighbors were their church community. But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were trying to ask him, like, what in the, like who is my neighbor? Like, he actually expands it out to those outside of Israel in Samaria. That's, that's, uh, and that's why the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan he told. It was an answer to that question. And so when Jesus is saying that, he is saying at least one another within the church and within the body of Christ, but never limited to. When John, in I think it's First John saying, or is it Jesus? My brain's fried. Um, you sh they shall know you by your love for one another. It is actually the way in which we love each other through this lens that is attractive and invites other people in. If we are not doing it, we have nothing to invite them into. We have nothing to, there's nothing that's un, kept unstained from the world because we are shaped more by it than the body of Christ. I hope that makes sense. If you have other questions, um, please come find me or you can text, um, text that same number afterwards and I would be happy to um, just talk over text if, if that's what you want. Or we can grab coffee, beer, lunch, whatever. Um, the good news in all of this, if it wasn't clear already, is that Jesus is not just the patron for our, our bread baking. He is not just the one who gives us the resources so that we can do this. He is the bread. He is our daily bread. He is the sustainer of all of, of, our, of, all of our lives. He, I, I love Darren picked this song at the very beginning uh, that he fills our lungs with his breath. He is the breath of our lungs. He is the reason why any of this is even remotely possible for us to be faithful in. It is that love incarnate as our patron. 
that makes the church different from any other kind of patronage system. The church is better not just from individualism, but also Diocles. <laughs> Even though the donuts would probably be very good. Okay. It is Jesus' visitation. It is his visiting us that gives us the strength and the nourishment to love. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he was with his friends. Hear that through patronage. Okay. He was with his friends, the disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this body is broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine. He poured it out. He says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is given, I've given all of myself to you. Therefore, give yourselves to one another and your neighbor as yourself. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. And that is some really good news. We need to hear it, but even more, we need to taste and see that it's good. And so we have some new chairs and so there may be some tightness on the edges as you come down eight to 10 at a time, just however many we can fit up here. And as we do, um, we'll take the elephants together, kind of as a family. We'll actually look each other in the eye. This isn't an exchange of uh, bread and wine services, okay? This is practicing and being in the presence of Jesus in and among his family. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. And therefore, Lord, help us to endure in and through the mercy of your table. You do not make any distinction. There is no partiality in you. Rich or poor, privileged or not, political alignment, notwithstanding, Lord, you are the King of kings, our Lord of lords and our patron. As your body, we pray in your name. Amen. Come and eat.